following podcast contains bad language. Some of the content may not be suitable for young people. Hi, I'm Dan McHugh and this is McHughniverse. In this episode, I'd like to talk about the future and I don't mean in a predictive sense of what life might become or whether we'll still exist in a thousand years. I mean the technology-driven future that pop culture promised us for decades. A cliched example is the movie Back to the Future 2, right? Where they predicted flying cars and biometric security in households by the year 2015. So, this technology, it pretty much exists. There have been all sorts of working flying car prototypes created, it's just that none of them have moved into commercial production. And on top of that, the first commercial biometric recognition systems became available in the early 1970s. So I'd like to say this, the science fiction future that movies predicted, we could actually already be there if we wanted to be. Individual awakening is really kind of, it's it's just a mistaken inference. It's true that if you don't, if you don't work individually, you don't make progress. And yet, when you make progress, you are actually drawing into your work, I think, you would touch the consciousness of many people and many people's consciousness are represented in your work, so it's impossible to put a boundary on awakening. And the universe doesn't, in this sense, doesn't even think in terms of individuals. Mm. I mean, it does, but it also thinks in terms, it's interested in awakening the entire species. It's not interested in awakening this religion and that religion or this planet and this this continent and that continent. It's interested in taking the whole of the human family into its evolutionary progression. Think about this. Think about about this. Not so long ago, I had a conversation with an old boss of mine and according to her, even though we have technology that will benefit people, it's more important to think about the commerciality of that technology than its benefit. So before we can utilise new and wonderful things, we need to enrol the masses in it to ensure sales and financial gain. It got me thinking. I feel that the human race needs to, in some ways, start thinking about itself as one organism. And I don't mean that we should stop being individuals or celebrating our differences in culture, but we do need to look at how we as a species are moving forward into the future together. I think if you were to look at humans as one organism, from a psychological standpoint, currently we are insane. We're prioritising the wrong things. Money, greed and glamour seem to be an acute focus, but for most of us, we'll never have that. We're more interested in propping up celebrities who are famous for doing nothing than we are supporting scientific discovery. The leader of the USA is a reality TV star. It really is time for us to mature as a species. Instead of behaving like squabbling kids fighting for personal glory, we need to create a better future for us as a whole. So of course this is all just an opinion, but I believe the future has been stalled by ego, by money. It's been stalled by us. I'm in the future. We are living in an age where technology has become integral to our everyday lives. Quite often this technology is marketed as being new and I gave the example of biometric security in my intro. It's been around for decades. Now, this technology has become more widely available so the cool thing now is you could actually deck out your whole home with biotech. You could automate your whole house like the Jetsons if you really wanted. 
Anyway, recently I caught up with Blair Crawford, who's the host of an amazing podcast. It's called Identity Today. He's also the MD of a biometric security company named Daltry. I'll let him explain exactly what it is that they do. So what we look at doing with a biometric identity is creating a digital representation of a person's physical self. So when we look at biometrics, what we're talking about is things like your iris, the unique aspects of your fingerprint, your face and your voice, and even the way that you behave. Example, keystrokes or the way that you move a mouse around a screen. All of these things are unique to a person. So the idea is that everybody's fed up with passports. You know, everyone's fed up with access cards and pin codes. So this is really driven from a user experience perspective as well as a security one. So it's about allowing you to get access seamlessly in through the front door and through the speed styles into server rooms, into your office. It can be anywhere. So if you walk in through the front door with your face, you can then sit down in front of your computer and use your face to log into business systems without any passwords, without any access cards. So companies like Daltry now exist to help facilitate keyless and passwordless security. We'll soon see this technology roll out through businesses and most likely in homes and vehicles. I envisage a world where we don't use any keys or cards or pin codes for anything that we do. We'll present ourselves to our car and it'll recognise us as we get there. And it'll start potentially using facial recognition. There are plenty of people that we've done jobs for. We've put biometrics onto their into their houses, into their front and the back doors, and then they enroll the people who are going to get access to that property. And I see this happening in the in the shorter term. I mean, I really think that a lot of new builds, you know, in fact, you already see them. A lot of new build apartments they have electronic access control already, and we're starting to see biometrics being deployed as a default as the uh, the technology to actually give people access into their properties in the first place. You know, it's being used in border control and for passenger management in airports now, but I think it's going to increasingly become more available into things like payments. I think that credit cards will go. They're already on your phone for a large part and there's been great adoption of things like Apple Pay and, and Google Pay globally. But I eventually think that you'll just turn up and you'll just be identified, provided you've provided consent for that use case, and you'll be able to pay with things just with your face. So I haven't yet really made a solid case for the idea that we're already living in a technology-driven future promised by science fiction, but I reckon people don't seem to realise how close we really are and have been for quite a while. So I really should have interviewed someone about 5G technology here, but have you ever questioned why we need it? I'm sure many of you know why, but it isn't just so people can write conspiracy theories about it on the internet. 5G has the potential to support millions of devices at ultra-fast speeds. Now, what that actually means is machines can talk to each other and we'll end up seeing things like drones for deliveries. We'll see the full automation of things like mining, farming and transport. And I thought it might also help with things like flying cars. But regardless of 5G... Some people aren't so convinced that we'll ever have them. I spoke to John Cadogan. You might find him on YouTube. He'll help you get a deal on a car. Go check him out. He's got a huge following. Anyway, he's been reporting on the car industry for more than 25 years. He also has a degree in mechanical engineering. Before we got talking about flying cars, I tried to sell him on the idea that we're living in this technological-driven future that science fiction movies promised us. And here's what he thinks. 
we do have a great deal of that tech. Like a smartphone is unbelievable in the context of go back to 1970 and think how difficult it was to navigate anywhere. We didn't have GPS in 1970. It rolled out of the blocks for the first time in Gulf War One in the 80s, if memory serves, you know. And GPS, for example, is a technological marvel. And uh, smartphones are a technological marvel now. You've literally got the watch that Dick Tracy had in the comics, you know and being able to pinpoint yourself anywhere on the surface of the earth using a little tiny glass and plastic block in your pocket that's science fiction right and we've got it now it's pretty amazing stuff i mean we don't have the weapons that they have in science fiction and that's probably a good thing we don't have some of them anyway we don't have ray guns and particle weapons and all of that kind of stuff and i'm kind of happy about that because You know, in East LA, a kid with a Tech 9 is dangerous enough. Companies like Aeromobile have said that they're set to deliver their first order of cars that can drive on the road and fly in the skies this year. And Uber are looking to launch fleets of small electric aircraft that can vertically take off and land in Dallas, Los Angeles and Melbourne in 2023. I asked John how realistic this might be. Okay, so is it realistic has at least two components. And the first component is, is it technically doable? Answer, yes, absolutely. Plenty of companies have tried that. Terrafugia was out of the blocks with their flying car in 2006. I think they got it up in the air in um, 2009 or something. It's had 12 flights and basically it's an aircraft, not unlike light aircraft that we see all the time, like a Cessna or something, and the wings fold and it turns into a car when you're driving it on the road. Okay, so that's all fine and dandy. The problem is, is there a market for that? And how do you conform with all of the regulations that exist for aircraft? And how do you then design an aircraft that transitions into a car and conforms with all of the regulations required to be a functional car, you know, and can you do that currently for less than, I don't know, 300,000 bucks or something US? Uh, $279,000 is the proposed price for the Terrafugia transition. But the thing about all of these projects is they keep making these promises like, oh, we'll have it here X. And when you get to X, it's always like, oh, we'll have it here in X plus two. (laughs) And when you get to X plus two, they're always pushing the date back because there there are significant impediments like i don't want to be up in the sky with five million other flying cars driven by human beings i want it entirely robotic because if you take the chaos of our road system and you introduce another degree of freedom the vertical degree of freedom and the fact that there's no predefined path for you to drive on like on the road at least there's a curb over there on the left and a center line over there on the right. And it's a really, really good idea to keep the car in between them. It's not like that in the sky. It's much more complex. And being a pilot is, in a sense, more complex than being a driver. And if the engine goes out in your plane, it's a bit more of a disaster than if you have an engine failure in a car. And you need systems in place to deal with all that stuff, obviously. Autonomy is going to be vital for flying cars, okay? So... 5G is obviously a communications protocol that can deconflict dozens and dozens, hundreds of cars contemporaneously in the sky 
in the same basic space. And deconfliction is really important, right? Because you don't want it, to, it, it's a big job to deconflict commercial aircraft over a city, right? Because you don't want plane A hitting plane B over the top of the CBD, obviously, you know? When you make the problem more complex, you put hundreds of flying cars in the sky, then deconfliction is a big deal and there has to be a communications protocol and then there has to be a system in place when that 5G network goes down for whatever reason. Like, what do you do then to make sure that everyone doesn't hit everyone else? Because I don't want a steering wheel coming out of the floor or something. It's going to keep getting pushed back, right? Because getting a vehicle into the sky, whatever that vehicle is, is pretty easy. I mean, and when you look at how simple they've made it, have a look at the DJI Mavic drone that you can buy if you're a filmmaker, right? Just buy yourself a DJI Mavic. If you've got a smartphone, you can fly it completely out of sight and if communications go down, it will come back to you. It won't run into any trees. It's got obstacle detection and all of that kind of stuff, okay? And the physics of flight, it doesn't matter if you're talking about half a kilo of drone or if you're talking about a few hundred kilos of flying car. The only problem is going to be the energy density of propulsion, right? You need a lot of energy to hold a lot of mass in the sky for a lot of time. And that energy intensity is uh, is going to be a problem that really isn't going away anytime soon. You're going to need either Big fat batteries, and batteries are very heavy when you think about, uh, that's why electric cars don't go as far as internal combustion cars, right? And then if you're going to use a liquid fuel like uh, petrol, for example, then that's going to give you more range, but it's also going to be, in a sense, a little bit more dangerous, and there's a lot more things that can go wrong with an internal combustion power plant in the sky, and you're going to have to, like when a helicopter has, the engine goes out, it it auto if the pilot knows what he's doing he can auto rotate safely and have a controlled crash landing right so you'd need protocols like that and and obviously this is why vertical takeoff and landing is better than uh, the fixed wing kind of takeoff and landing because the speed's lower and you're still going to need some protocol in place for landing if you've got vertical takeoff and landing because you don't want to have a controlled crash landing into somebody's pool or onto somebody's roof or onto somebody walking the pram down the street. So there we have it. Yes, we have flying cars, but whether we'll see them driving through the neighbourhood is another question. Imagine if we could take a glimpse into the future to find out. Or if we could somehow communicate with people in the future using some kind of time machine. Well, guess what? That might just be a possibility. I spoke to Professor Matthew Zadakis from University at Albany in New York State. His area of research is in experimental astroparticle physics, in particular direct detection of dark matter. And we spoke about the possibility of time travel. And I straight up asked him if we'll see time travel in our lifetime. It's very unlikely that we'll ever be able to send humans for a variety of reasons. There are a lot of problems, a lot of challenges that we can't see how we would be able to overcome. I'm, I'm more optimistic that we would be able to send subatomic particles. And what's really funny is that, that I know that sounds very disappointing because everyone wants to sit in their machine, but what's really ironic is that many of my colleagues think I'm crazy and that's too optimistic. 
to even claim that you could send particles. So the most promising idea comes from Professor Ronald Mallett from University of Connecticut. I've met with him, spoken to him. He's in, uh, helped inspire me to continue to be interested in this topic that's considered, you know, kind of off the wall. But in Professor Mallett's idea, he was thinking of having a circulating laser beam lined along a cylinder where you could send a particle on one end and it would emerge on the other end in the past. And the idea is, is to then use some sort of communication, like almost like a, you know, Morse code or binary type thing, something very simple along those lines to attempt to actually have constructive communication uh, with the past. So I know that doesn't sound exciting, but actually it is. Imagine if we could text our future or past selves. But I was a tad suspicious. How would shining some lasers through a cylinder enable time travel? The one thing that we know can bend time is gravity, but we don't usually think of light as producing its own gravitational field because it doesn't have any mass. But if you have a high enough intensity and energy of light, light can actually, in a sense, mimic mass since equals mc squared and energy and mass are interchangeable in a sense with a with a strong enough laser light a laser can actually produce its own gravitational field at a very small level that's the key the the problem is is scaling up so the the thing is you're trying to extract an effect from a very small a very small gravitational field and very small amount of energy. So it's not clear how one could take, for example, a mallet's uh, cylinder to a practical level is very, very unclear at the moment how we would even do that. So you know the expression, you have to walk before you can run. I think that we, we would have to first demonstrate something with subatomic particles before we could even think about large-scale objects or people because it's it, the practicalities get worse as you try to scale up any of these ideas that we're discussing. So just say Professor Ron Mallett gets his time-travelling laser cylinder working. My limited understanding is that sending particles or information forward in time will be much easier than any sort of backwards time travel. Going to the future is quote unquote easy <laughs> by comparison. Problem is if you want to send signals or objects or people, doesn't matter what we're talking about to the past. Basically, think of it as symmetry. Instead of going into math and equations, of course, the nice way to think about it is, is by symmetry. So a p- positive um, energy density like in gravity leads to Um, being able to go to the future. If you want to go to the past, you need negative energy. And so the problem is not just astronomical amounts of energy. The problem is positive versus negative. We have no idea how to generate negative energy. We don't even know if it exists naturally or can be produced. So that's a huge problem and a huge open question when it comes to time travel to the past. And faster than light travel, you're right, it's connected. It's the exact same problem. For, those are intimately connected. You need negative energy for, for both. And we don't know how to do that, how to manufacture that. If you're a fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson, 
You may have heard him talking about the idea that time travel is not possible due to the fact that we don't have any knowledge of tourists from the future. Professor Matthew Sadagas had a pretty good rebuttal to that. I'm nowhere near as famous as someone like um, uh, the, the late Stephen Hawking or Neil deGrasse Tyson, and they have said things like, oh, that's definitive proof there's no such thing as time travel. And as you know, if you've seen you know, my, my TED Talk, I very much disagree for a very logical reason, which is no matter how you slice it, like what techniques you look at, wormholes or, 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 or mallets technique, no matter what thing, no matter what type of time travel you look at, the one fundamental thing that according to our current understanding of physics, the one limitation is that you can't go back in time before the moment you build your machine or phenomenon or whatever it is. That's a very important limitation. Um, so no visitors from the future doesn't disprove anything whatsoever. It's completely irrelevant because all that means is that we don't have time travel yet today. So if we developed it tomorrow, for example, that means everyone can pile in from infinite number of years, you know, in the future back to tomorrow, but they can't come to today because there's no time travel yet invented today. And I know that's very tough, very tough to accept because that's not how time travel works in any story in TV or movies, because that's a very problematic limitation. Because that means if I built a machine today, I can't go visit ancient Rome, not happen. And, and so I hope that that addresses once and for all the tourist thing. That's a very good question, though. It always comes up. I think that we need to expand our minds, like uh, Q always said to Captain Picard in Star Trek, you know, expand our horizons. I think that there's, if, if time travel is real, it probably has its own set of rules and logic that maybe we have not yet discovered. I think we can't discount that possibility. So I, I think that saying time travel is illogical, therefore is impossible. That's a statement of faith. That's not a scientific statement. That's just, that's taking it on faith. And I really hope that Neil deGrasse Tyson, I get him angry enough where he notices me and he's like, hey, and he hears this and he challenges me because I, I disagree with him on a lot of things. And time travels is a big thing where I, I, I would like to remind him that people used to laugh about space travel. People used to laugh about air travel. Oh, that's never happening. There are quotes from famous physicists saying that air travel and space travel are stupid and that nuclear energy will never exist. And here we are with nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. And so just because you're a scientist doesn't make you infallible. Everything I told you today could be wrong. And I'm honest about it. I'm telling you my best answers, and I'm giving you the, the, the examples of what data I'm using to back that up, but I'm not perfect, and the scientific method isn't perfect either. And we need to always, we need to be self-questioned. So, Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you're listening, you and Professor Zadagas need to get together for a battle of the minds. You are being called out, buddy. So the idea that time travel to the future is theoretically easier than traveling to the past. It kind of ties in with comments that have been made in previous episodes of McUniverse. That humans are trapped in time, always being pushed forward, kind of like a video game. My next guest, Karita Gronroos, 
is a former multimedia developer and now has a Reiki practice in the Sydney suburb of Dremoyne. Karita has had various experiences that one could only describe as metaphysical. How is this relevant? Well, the story you're about to hear involves time travel. In fact, Karita went back in time, almost like a quantum leap. I'll let her share the details. I was coming home from working as a multimedia developer. I was just so exhausted from working that day. I was waiting at the set of lights to cross to go catch my bus home. And as I'm just sort of standing there, next thing I know, I'm kind of finding myself inside somebody else's body in 1850s America. And part of me was like so shocked that I was there. I was like, I was riding inside someone else's head and I was like a passenger next to their personality in their head. I could feel what it was like to be in their body and I remember looking down I had this sort of blue frilly dress on and then I sort of hoiked up the hem of my skirt to look at my shoes and it's like oh I've got these old you know 1800s types of shoes on and then I remember thinking oh my feet hurt these shoes are far too small Um, but there I am walking with my best friend in this township I got this sense of you know how when you know where you are in the world you kind of know your place as being you know in Sydney I kind of know it in relation to the rest of the country and the world and so I, I had that sense of oh, I'm somewhere in middle America so I kind of definitely knew I was in that part of the world I don't remember what the name of the town was but I'm there walking with my best friend we're on this like wooden I don't know what you call it like a veranda thing like we've just come out of a shop and we're and I just remember like my friends nattering away about something, but I'm having a complete head spin around w- what the hell is going on. And then just being like, it was so visceral, like the sound, like the clanging of the, like the horses and the, uh, what do you call them, the, the wagon wheels and all that sort of stuff and the chains and the clanking. and cl- it, was, it was just really, really noisy kind of place, you know. Everything was in a rushing by and got the blacksmiths going off and it was quite a hub-hub of activity. And then after that, I became really aware of the smell of the place. And it was just like this really intense ammonia smell from all the horse shit and horse urine everywhere. And I was just like, oh my God, because I now have a quite a sensitive sense of smell. So to be kind of accosted with this intense smell was just like, whoa, this is... Oh, this is so gross. And then I became really aware of my own smell because, you know, deodorant didn't exist back then. And so I've gone, oh, my God, I reek. And and my friend reeks. And she's like, everything just stank. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we're just still walking along. I'm just going, oh, God, this is so intense, like sensory kind of overload of smell, sight, sound, everything like that. And then we... Um, stepped off the porch we came to the end of the porch and we almost sort of got hit by like a wagon coming past and that's where like I flinched and then I suddenly found myself back in Brisbane waiting at the street lights no time had passed here even though I'd spent a good 10 minutes in the other place and then the man turned green and I walked across the road and walked to my bus But I didn't know what to make of it. I don't know if it's like a past life thing. I don't know if it was a quantum shift. I don't know if it's like I've managed to come across like a a weakness in energy fields of the planet and I've somehow slipped 
into an alternative dimension. I have no idea what it was, but yeah, it was just so visceral and real. And that's probably the most intense experience that I've had. So, as usual, we've journeyed quite a long way. We're far from talking about technology or science, but if you've listened before, you'd know that I'm totally captivated with human experience and how broad that can be. Our next guest is Joseph Ortega from California, USA. He had an experience where he fell completely out of time. For him, this experience felt like an eternity, but in real time, it was just an hour. I was working in Yosemite. It's like a resort in a forest with a bunch of cabins, and I was a part of the maintenance crew. I smoked an incredibly small amount of weed, and then I went to go lay down. During this time, I was just humming, and I was stretching my vocal cords. I was humming as low as I could, and then I realized that I could hum in my mind. I could keep humming lower than I could hum with my vocal cords. And I could feel my body in a way that promoted hyper attention. So instead of going low, I started humming high. You know, I hummed as high as I could. And it pierced my mind as I was projecting it. That was the moment of overwhelmingness that was the moment of like this becoming not just a visit to my mind it became travel and as that was happening in my mind it was oscillating you know like it's the sound became visual and the higher the pitch the more intense these visualizations until they became a grid that was backed by a black background and these grids were just representing depth and I was just floating through. I didn't feel a body. It just felt like pure consciousness floating through this void. And I did not sense a body or a vessel of any kind. I was just consciousness going through it. And people talk about these kind of experiences as like, oh my gosh, it just felt so at peace and everything was wonderful and I felt, you know, like there was nothing else I ever needed to know and nothing else I ever needed to know and it just, I didn't feel that way. I very much felt like I was on a subway, on a metro and there was just some dude eyeballing me. I was not even under the impression I was able to be looked at and this dude just happened to be this, you know, 10 foot tall, goat headed, hoofed bat-winged creature with the chest and arms of a man. You know, like Baphomet. That's what the guy looked like. And he was looking at me like like he was like upper echelon. Like, oh, they let you guys in here now? Aren't you guys supposed to be like in the physical realm? Like he was just giving me this weird look like, you're not supposed to be here. Come on, you know you're not supposed to be here. What you doing here? And the moment I felt that sensation of difference and insecurity and 
the sensation of, oh, I don't know where I am. It all went sucking back to reality. I, w- I slammed into my body. It, when I was aware I was in my body, I had realized that I really didn't remember who I was. It really had only been like an hour (laughs) was the funniest thing for me. I was just losing my mind in the encompassment of an hour. And when I came back, I was just, just like, you know, if, if somebody fudged something in a musical scale, it, it just went right back to it. It was just the whole song just kept playing, man. Like it just, just this one instance of this fudge, just somebody, you know, fucking up just one little note. And that was an eternity for me. It was just right back to playing. It was just right back to it. And it's like, when I say I came back with no memories, it, there are people that speak about, uh, the second death, you know, you, you become a pure particle of energy, you know, your body dies and your soul becomes recycled and people talk about it like that. I don't know if that's precisely what happened, but I, I feel like whatever my conscious was doing at that time, it got, it like didn't pierce the veil, but it, I was relieved of my duty as a human being. And it wasn't natural for me to just come back after that. So that's what happens, I think. So that's it for another episode of McCuniverse. Let me know your thoughts. Send me an email, dan at danmccu.com.au or find me on Instagram, McCuniverse Podcast. Also, I can't thank my guests enough for being part of the show. Thank you to Blair Crawford, John Cadogan, Matthew Sadakis, Karita Gronroos and Joseph Ortega. I'll throw links and articles in the show notes and this will give you an opportunity to follow them up. A special thanks goes out to Stanley Stevenson and Jake Dawson whose voices you can hear at the beginning of the show. So make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you can join me for the next episode of McUniverse. I'll catch you next time.